Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. We're only a week out from a movie that apparently needs to end up being one of the biggest movies of all time just to break even. We'll tell you what we know about it so far. Plus, I'm Jeff Braun. I'll review the hottest movie on Netflix right now, a Norwegian action adventure movie called Troll. Plus, it's a good week for reality competition shows. This week saw the finale for the latest Amazing Race, and next week it's Survivor. So next week on the big screen, it's a big one. But just how big remains the question. The motion picture event of a generation is even better in 3D. This sea is around you and in you. The Way of Water. Ready PG-13. Tickets on sale now. December 16th. Pretty bold proclamation calling it the motion picture event of a generation. But there it is. Avatar The Way of Water. The sequel 13 years in the making from director James Cameron. The first movie came out in December 2009. And it didn't exactly destroy the box office in its opening weekend. But it certainly had a strong debut for a new story, something we'd never heard of, $77 million domestically. But its stunning visuals, particularly the 3D component for a lot of people, created serious word of mouth, many repeat viewings. It carried it to behemoth status. It now sits in fourth place overall at the domestic level for all time with $785 million. And it remains number one worldwide at $2.9 billion. What is Avatar, you might ask? Well, in short, it's set in the future on a distant moon. The humans are mining and colonizing, but they have the local population to contend with. Those people are the Na'vi. They're tall blue people who ride fancy animals on the ground and in the air, and I guess now underwater. The story was simple. Nothing we hadn't seen before. It was the way we got to see that story that made it so big for its time because 3D had just recently become a thing again and since James Cameron doesn't do anything half-baked, he basically invented his own technology to allow him to shoot the movie in 3D rather than convert it later and boy oh boy, it really was spectacular when combined with the lush and colorful visuals on screen. Like I remember reading one early review where the critics said something like, it was like being high, like I was on a drug. I need to see this movie again. And that's how I felt after seeing it. I went to, remember going to a midnight show, opening night, stood in line for 90 minutes, sat through the near three-hour runtime until 3 a.m. beside an annoyed girlfriend who thought I was a nerd. And from the second I walked out, I thought, I need to see that again. But uh, a funny thing happened after its theatrical release was done. I asked for the special edition Blu-ray for Christmas, and uh, I don't know that I've ever watched it. The, I mean, the story was fine. There's nothing bad about it, but it wasn't the story that I loved about the movie. It was the visuals. So when James Cameron started talking about doing not just a sequel, but multiple sequels, I wondered if he was overplaying his hand, betting on something that people have simply left behind. You know, we've been exposed to so much big blockbuster CG, so much 3D since that movie. Will he be able to recapture that magic again? So here we are heading towards December 16th. We finally have the sequel, Avatar The Way of Water. Why do you come to us? I just want to keep my family safe. Ah. 
treat them as our brothers and sisters. Teach them our ways. Keep up, Forrest, boy. If you want to live here, you have to ride. Let's do it. Early reactions to this have largely been the same. Spectacular, mesmerizing, staggering visuals, big blockbuster filmmaking at its finest. Although, most of the commentary, again, is about the visuals. And some of those reactions were negative, saying the story is too simple and it's too long. It's just over three hours. But another common comment I saw... Don't bet against James Cameron, and it's something you said a few weeks back, Jeff. I mean, the man is simply relentless in his pursuit of redefining cinema every time he does a movie. And one of the reasons this movie took so long, for example, he wanted to perfect motion capture underwater. So, again, the visuals do look extraordinary, but when I watched the trailer, I just I felt nothing. I have no burning desire to go back to Pandora. I mean, I'll go. I'll check it out. My mind it remains open, but... I don't know. Where do you sit on this, Jeff? Yeah, no, I, I'm the same with you in that it was cool to see Avatar when it first came out, and I haven't even thought about it since, I don't think. But it, it's back. Remember, they re-released it in theaters a couple of months ago and took it off Disney Plus during that time. To So if you wanted to see it, you had to go to theaters kind of a thing. But it's back on Disney Plus now, so this weekend I think I will watch Avatar 1 again just to... You know, for one thing, if you're going to see the sequel and you haven't seen the original in 13 years, just to remember everything, to do that again, but also to try and, uh, yeah, build up some hype for myself. So I will be more excited when I go see this this new one. And I, I was encouraged by all these uh, reviews saying that it looks spectacular. So even if the story isn't, you know, the greatest of all time, at least you will have that. And uh, it's a, a rare thing for us to see something new on on the movie screen that we've never seen before. So I'm excited in that way. But yeah, like you, yeah, like uh, Avatar has no uh, cultural cachet, really, I don't think, anymore. And uh, it's not something I've missed. I, I, the, my favorite thing about this so far is this one tweet I saw, or I guess it's two tweets from this guy. His name is Andy Levy. I think he's a podcaster. He tweeted out last week, uh, just says, Hey, James Cameron, why don't you just marry water, lol? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's true. Titanic, The Abyss. He does a lot of water kind of movies. Um, and then the next tweet just, just says, hashtag film Twitter. And then after that, he wrote, fact. James Cameron has been divorced four times, and each time it was because his wife caught him filling up the sink and kissing the water. <laughs> it's just the silliest thing I've ever read, but oh, it made me laugh. Yeah, you know, the guy and his love of the water, it's its pretty remarkable. And, and I know a lot of that has to do with the fact that he just cares about the planet. But to keep going back to making movies in the water where they like, it just adds so much difficulty to, to the production. Like the abyss, I think you've yeah. talked about this in recent months. Wasn't the abyss like a legendary difficult shoot? Uh, I, I, I'm, I don't know about that one. I know Titanic certainly was. And a lot of the, like Kate Winslet's like, I'm never doing a water movie again, kind of a thing like that. So the abyss probably was too. And again, he just like, he did Titanic because he wanted to go down and see the real Titanic. So you know, he's a genius and he's like, well, why should I pay my own money for that when I can get movie studios to pay me to go down and see the Titanic? I just got to make a movie for them kind of thing. And I think the abyss, a lot of that was built around coming up with the technology that ended up uh, for the multi-metal guy, the T-1000 and Terminator 2 and stuff like that. So it's always the science of these things that has him 
that that's like his guiding force. That's the catalyst for everything he does. And then we just get to go, you know, see the final output of it or whatever. He's he's had his adventure, and then at the end, he gives us a movie to watch. And you know, I'm and I'm sorry to, that I, I put that on you. I was trying to remember. I it was in I knew it was in my brain somewhere. I just couldn't remember where I heard it. And and as you were talking, like, oh no. It wasn't Jeff. It was uh, it was some YouTube video. It was like a retrospective on the abyss, and uh, apparently one of the actors almost died uh, because they almost drowned. And and some of the people involved in that movie apparently still go through therapy because of what they underwent during that shoot. So that was. Uh, to keep going back to water is pretty crazy to me, but the box office predictions for opening weekend are 150 to $175 million. Cameron himself says the movie needs to finish third or fourth all time just to break even, and even he admits that's a terrible business model. But apparently he wants to go as far as Avatar 7, but only if this movie yields positive box office, so I guess we'll just have to wait to see what it makes and what is considered positive. And I'm also just curious, like, I'll go see it, and I'm sure I'll be mesmerized by the visuals, but I wonder after seeing so many big visual digital spectacles, how much will I care? Especially after a movie like Top Gun Maverick reminded us that movies based in the real world are still fun to watch and can be just as spectacular. And yes, I know that movie employed digital effects, etc., but still, it was set in the real world. And uh, anyway, I'm not writing Avatar off. I'm sure it will be a big success. Will it be successful enough? I guess we'll just have to... Find out soon. But in a moment, I'm really curious about this movie Jeff watched. I, I sort of saw it on the Netflix crawl. I meant to go back to it, but I'm going to get more on Troll. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And the number one movie on Netflix this week is from Norway, and it's called Troll. You tell your little Stein. Yes, no, and, of course, it's in Norwegian. Troll is a Scandinavian cross between a Dean Devlin disaster movie like 1998's Godzilla and Jurassic Park. It's about a 10-story-tall mountain troll who wakes up and terrorizes the Norwegian countryside on its way to Oslo. Like a lot of those Devlin movies, the characters are a mix of scientists, politicians, and military personnel, and they join forces to try to bring down this troll that's running amok. The main character is a paleontologist and archaeologist who we see briefly as a young girl with her father learning the legend of the trolls at the very beginning of the movie. And then the movie proper starts, and we see her as an adult, where she's on some kind of a dig discovering dinosaur bones. You know, the same way we were introduced to Sam Neill and Laura Dern in Jurassic Park. The movie has several nods to the Spielberg classic. There's lines like, you know, you're only interested in if you could do it, not if you should do it. And the, even the iconic shot of the ripples in the glass of water from the footsteps of something big coming this way. This movie does that, too. It doesn't play like some kind of a soulless ripoff. It plays more like an homage. So I, I had no problem with that. In fact, movie's pretty entertaining. It kind of follows the formula you expect. But instead of, you know, coming off as lazy and unoriginal, I found it weirdly uh, a, a, like a comfort viewing experience. Uh, of course, there's the wrinkle of it being in Norwegian. So you do have to to read the subtitles there is an english dub version available if you don't want to read the subtitles but you know and like a lot of scandinavian fare there's also something just a little more bleak or at least muted in general going on compared to uh big noisy hollywood movies that said it was also it was funnier than i was expecting there's a character who's an aide to the prime minister he's one of like the three main guys and he tells us early on about this science fiction book he's writing and then there's a running gag where he enters a scene while he's talking to someone but he's and he's always giving out the details of his story 
there's enough stuff like that to kind of freshen up, uh, you know, what would otherwise be a formulaic of a kind of a movie. The military guy, he's kind of a cliche military guy, but he's also a nice guy. He's it's not unexpected, but often in these movies, it takes, you know, the whole movie for that guy to come around. But here he's kind of nice and level-headed right out of the gate. And then, of course, we also get the madman. It's the paleontologist's father who knows all the troll lore from olden times, and that, you know, makes him suddenly an important authority on the situation, even though he'd been written off as a wacko for years. And as far as the special effects scope, the troll itself, they're pretty good. It's obviously a CGI monster, but it looks real enough most of the time. There are occasional instances where it looks a little silly, but for the most part, I thought it looked legit and menacing, and it would be terrifying if this was really happening in front of you. He's King Kong size, but because he's also humanoid, it's even a little bit creepier, and he causes a lot of damage without even trying. Just walking around, a lot of stuff gets crunched into oblivion. He also has a tail that wags back and forth, smashing everything it hits to pieces. So it's good stuff all around. I thought it was a pleasant surprise. I wasn't really thinking it was going to be very good. But uh, if you like the disaster movies of the 90s, I'm pretty sure you can get on board and enjoy some troll action over on Netflix. I'll give it three and a half couch cushions out of five. I love a good disaster movie. I love big monsters. So I thank you for putting this officially on my radar. I think I will uh, check that out. Maybe even tonight. Now, I just wanted to mention this quickly here because I, I missed this last week. There's a movie that has returned to theaters for a two-week run. So that started on December 2nd, and which means there's only one week left because it wraps up on December 15th. It, it galls me to say it, but for reasons known only to the Almighty and your guardian angel, you've been called back to Top Gun. Sir, you are dismissed, Captain. Can't get enough of that scene. Top Gun Maverick! And I feel dumb having missed that it was back on the big screen because this week I ended up renting it at home on Prime Video and watched it twice! I should have gone to see it again on the big screen, although there is still time. But that's six times now that I've seen this movie. Lol! And it, by the way, for those with Paramount+, Plus, it arrives on December 22nd. Also, a couple of uh, Star Wars notes. The Bad Batch Season 2 trailer arrived this week for Disney+. Plus. That's a cartoon about a rogue squadron of clones trying to evade the Empire after the Clone Wars while getting into some fun adventures along the way. We're soldiers. We do what needs to be done. Move! You know what makes us different? We make our own choices. What do you need, Rex? Any chance I could use you for a mission? Exciting to see Rex in that trailer. He was central to the Clone Wars cartoon, and he later pops up in Star Wars Rebels, which is also an excellent cartoon. Now, the first season of The Bad Batch was cool. Season 2 starts on January 4th. And in the meantime, The Mandalorian Season 3 debut. Uh, it was actually supposed to start in February, but then they announced this week that it's going to debut on March 1st on Disney+. Plus. So, like, they're really... The Star Wars has done a pretty good job at covering, running the gauntlet of Kate, like creating stuff for different age groups. Like the cartoons are can be enjoyed by adults, but they're aimed more at a younger audience. And then you've got their, your standard fare, which maybe is sort of like the spread gun where it's trying to appeal to everybody. And then we just had Andor, Jeff, which was uh, yeah. so mature. It was easily the most mature thing they've ever done. Yeah, it's weird. Like, uh, you're right. They, they do have, they're trying to catch all of us, and I think they're doing a pretty good job of it. So, not every Star Wars entry is for everyone, but 
um, it's hard to find a Star Wars entry that's not for anyone, you know what I mean? And on HBO, His Dark Materials Season 3 debuted on Monday, and this is based on a trilogy of fantasy books from author Philip Pullman. HBO has achieved what they failed to do on the big screen, and that's actually adapt the books. They tried with one movie, The Golden Compass, but it was kind of a flop, so they didn't make any more movies. Season 2 aired in 2020, so it's been a while. Again, it's a problem with these shows that take these two-year breaks. I can't remember what happened, but what's weird is Monday morning, I just randomly thought of it out of nowhere. I was like, oh, I wonder when season three starts. So I looked it up, and it was just that day, December 5th, 2022. So my mind was mildly blown by that. I watched the first episode. It's pretty cool. Uh, just look up the trailer. The visuals are quite spectacular for a television show. Up next, we've got to tell you about a trailer that launched, like, an hour after we finished recording last week, this always happens to us. Details next. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And right after we wrapped up our show last week, a trailer dropped for what will surely be one of next year's most anticipated movies. It's Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I've seen things. Things I can't explain. And I've come to believe it's not so much what you believe. It's how hard you believe I'm her godfather. Get back. Harrison Ford is, uh, I don't know, 11 years old at this point, but the trailer for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is pretty slick, and people are, of course, excited. I mean, it's almost impossible not to have that nostalgia bone tickled when you hear the theme song. So I think I am excited about this, although I remember we were all excited before The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out 15 years ago. How is that movie 15 years old already? There have been a lot of examples of, you know, good trailers for bad movies, but I weirdly have a lot of faith in the director. It's James Mangold. He's made some great movies like Copland, Logan, Walk the Line, and Ford versus Ferrari. Now he's made some stinkers too, but for some reason I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. On the other hand, we of course gave Steven Spielberg the benefit of the doubt walking into Crystal Skull, so I, I guess I'm torn. It's so rare that something like this actually pays off, but I mean, we saw that earlier this year with Top Gun Maverick. That paid off more than I think even they probably expected. So I guess the real answer is we simply aren't going to know if about this movie until we see it. I, I will say I rewatched The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull this week, and while it remains firmly in you know fourth place in the official Indiana Jones ranking, I think it's growing on me, maybe. I mean, the alien plot never bothered me because all the Indiana Jones movies are pretty far-fetched, so why not aliens? It's just kind of a there's kind of a lifelessness to it. It doesn't feel like I'm watching Indiana Jones. It feels like I'm watching Harrison Ford dressed up like Indiana Jones. It looks like it looks like actors on sets instead of an actual thing happening. And then of course there's the CGI issue. I mean, the chase through the jungle near the end is well choreographed, but it all looks so fake. And of course it was from an era where the effects could be marginal and everyone was still trying out how to, you know, properly utilize CGI. I mean, because the horde of angry giant ants, that was good, but the monkey swinging on a vine, that was bad. I don't know. Gripes aside, I kind of find Crystal Skull 
a watchable movie. I don't, I don't hate it as much as I used to. So I, I, I just don't know what to expect with this new movie, Brett, but I sure did like that trailer. Yeah, the trailer had, you, you mentioned the, the nostalgia bone be tickled with the music. When that music popped up in that trailer, oh, just goosebumps everywhere. And uh, I'm kind of the same with you with Crystal Skull. Like, I know when it came out, we were excited. I, I don't remember what you gave it. I can't remember the, what I gave it, but I know that I, I was too generous. I was just so excited to see Indiana Jones on the big screen again that I, I think I was just riding that nostalgia high. And then as time went on and I was able to sort of look back at the movie and go, huh, it really wasn't as good as I thought it was. But yeah, it's all right. I, it's a cool story. And I don't have a problem with the yeah. aliens thing either. I'm just I find I still find the ending confusing. I don't know exactly what the heck is happening here uh, when that movie comes to a screeching halt. But uh, overall, it's okay, and I'm very very excited for this new one. And I hope that they learned from the mistakes that were made in that last one and don't overdo the CGI because that was uh, I still remember they they made a promise when they were making Crystal Skull or planning it that they were going to use as many practical effects as they could. And there were times where mm. I just felt like, where are the practical effects that you promised? Because I'm not seeing them here. But uh, yeah, that looks great. Can't wait for Indiana Jones. Meanwhile, there's a show that wrapped up this week that kind of disappeared for a couple of years because of, well, pandemic. But I'm just so glad to have been able to enjoy it again this year, threefold, The Amazing Race. New Wednesday. <laughs> The margin for error is almost zero. This right! Way, this way. Go right! Everybody's five minutes within each other. Excuse us, we're in a race for a million dollars. The Amazing Race season finale. This week, CBS wrapped up its 34th season of The Amazing Race. They had two seasons this year. The one that ran earlier this year was the COVID-interrupted season where they had to send everyone home after one of the early legs, and they came back months later to finish the race. And that was just an incredibly emotional snapshot of how scary everything was at the start of the pandemic when we didn't really know what was going on and uh, how emotional it was to be able to get back to real life. And it was just a good season, good cast of teams, fun locations, etc. And The Amazing Race Canada also returned, and it was fantastic. I've always liked the Canadian version better because, well, it's, you know, Canadian, but the teams are always just a little bit nicer. You know, I hate to be that guy who dumps on Americans just for being Americans, uh, but I remember one year The Amazing Race Canada ended, and the following week the American version launched its latest season, and there were so many people in that American version who were just so aggressive and obnoxious. So I think that's why the Canadian version is a bit more refreshing because it's, it feels like a more friendly competition. But this season is probably one of the first where I, I didn't like, didn't hate any of the teams. Uh, they were all great. Some are maybe a bit more boring, but this felt more like the Amazing Race Canada because everyone was either nice or likable or positive. And uh, the big difference, of course, between the two shows is the Canadian version tends to keep the show within our borders because we have such a gigantic landmass to explore, uh, save for one or two excursions elsewhere, whereas the CBS version sends the racers around the world. And uh, for the first time, there were no, no non-elimination legs. There were usually at least three legs, maybe four, where all teams would complete the leg of the race, but the last team would be saved. Now, this is a non-elimination leg. It, it always just felt arbitrary, like the producers were deciding on, on the fly. Uh, this team's fun, let's keep them. Or that, that team's boring, let them go. And this time, all bets were off. But they did have 
two mega legs, which lasted two episodes each. So they would finish the first half of the leg and then they would keep going. But otherwise, in just every regular leg, the last team to arrive was gone. So that, I think, added to the stakes. And uh, this year, this is just a random sidebar, but it was cool because they went to Iceland and they were greeted on the mat in one of the most beautiful spots ever. They were surrounded by waterfalls and the most stunning hillside landscape, but uh, they were greeted by Phil and Olafur Olafsson. Now, that name might not mean anything to you. Truth be told, I didn't even know his name, but I knew him. He's the main actor from the show that I've talked so much about over the years, Trapped from Iceland. There are two seasons on Netflix called Trapped and a third season called Entrapped. Excellent show. First season is the best. Second is really good. Third season was okay, but I recognized him for that and... As you may remember, Jeff, one awesome scene in the first season of True Detective where he gave Matthew McConaughey the what's for. I can see your soul at the edges of your eyes. It's corrosive, like acid. You've got a demon, little man. And I don't like your face. It makes me want to do things to it. Ginger, you call me again. I'm setting miles on you. I see you again, and I'm putting you down. There's a shadow on you, son. Remember that scene, Jeff? Uh, no, I don't, but that makes me want to go watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, honestly, he had the one scene in the show, but I just remember I was so haunted by it. He was so big and scary, yeah. and he's got this big, deep voice, so that to then see him standing on the mat with this big smile on his face and kindness in his eyes, and I was like, oh... He, he's actually capable of happiness because he usually either plays big scary men or big sad men. Um, but it was funny and, and sad because Phil says to the contestants, hey, this is one of the most famous actors in Iceland, to which they would say, oh, yeah, okay, that's cool. Not one person recognized him. No. I mean, had I arrived on the mat to see him, I would have lost it. But not that I expect everyone to know about a little show from Iceland. Anyway, it was just a fun moment for me. And uh, I think it's one of the reasons why I like The Amazing Race, because of the international component. It's a way to get to see the world in 12 weeks. And the show just overall was tremendous this particular season. It had one of the closest finales ever. Often in the final episode, one team falls behind early due to a dumb mistake. And then they're just out of the, the running, or there's a simple transportation mishap, like getting a bad cabbie. But this was back and forth, right to the end. It was a true head-to-head, one of the craziest final challenges they've ever done. It was a true test of both memory and adaptability. I just loved it. So if you were ever a fan of The Amazing Race but fell off, I would say watch this season on demand. It should hopefully be there with your cable provider. And watch The Amazing Race Canada while you're at it. The last three seasons are available on demand. And uh, The Amazing Race continues to be one of my faves. And it's a nice back-to-backer because it aired Wednesdays alongside Survivor, which wraps up its 43rd season this upcoming Wednesday, December 14th, on Global. And I know that, Jeff, you sort of left The Amazing Race behind, but both of us are still all in on Survivor. I would say this season has once again been excellent. What do you think? Yeah, I've enjoyed it a lot, too. It's sort of, it's been excellent, but it's also been the thing where I can tell it's like, I'm going to come back, you know, turn on my TV after Christmas or the next season of Survivor will start in March or whatever, and I will completely have forgotten anything about the season that we're watching right now. But I have been enjoying it uh, week to week to week. It is, there hasn't been a like a 
quote unquote bad episode or anything like that. Every week it's been interesting. Yeah, no, it's been it's been fun. It's the the, the characters are interesting. The the uh, the betrayals that we're seeing are cool. And just this past week, there was a a, a really great blindside that just still pointed out that as smart as these people think they are, sometimes they do really dumb things and uh, you just can't get away with that kind of stuff anymore on this game. So yeah, I love it. Looking forward to the finale once again, Wednesday night on global up next. Jeff tells me, Hey, I watched this movie this week and I thought, why? So we're going to tell you which one right away. You're listening to the couch potatoes. Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and there's a movie that's been out for over a decade that I think has gotten a bad rap. It is time for justice for Paul Blart, Mall Cop. We got a high roller. Meet Paul Blart. I'm going to have to issue a citation. You're kidding, sir. I'm warning you. You're a nasty old man. He's a mall cop. Get the fake cop a hug, Jacob. On January 16th, there's some people trying to take over the mall. I took an oath to protect this mall. Blart Mall Cop. Oh, that's not a bit. Rated PG. In 2009, Kevin James starred in and as Paul Blart Mall Cop, a movie that instantly became a punchline. I think the word Blart didn't help matters any. The movie made over $183 million in theaters, though, on a $26 million budget, so it was a huge hit. It's at 34% on Rotten Tomatoes, and the critics are mostly right. It is not a great movie by any means, but I did watch it recently because uh, my girlfriend's 12-year-old, uh, it was his night to pick the movie for the family, and this is what he wanted to watch, so we watched it. <coughs> that was about three weeks ago. I watched the sequel this past week, and I'm here to say these movies are not as bad as a reputation. Kevin James plays a mall security guard, as you might have known. And in the first movie, he has to take down some bad guys who are trying to steal credit card numbers from shoppers or something like that. I will say that a guy shows up very early in that movie, and my girlfriend immediately pegged him as the bad guy. So these movies are pretty formularic and formulaic and predictable. And sometimes, you know, that's just what the doctor ordered. I like complex movies with underlying themes and subtext and intricate plotting that requires you to pay close attention. But on a Friday night, after a long week when I'm this close to just falling asleep on the couch, sometimes you just want to watch a big guy throw himself around the screen. And that's what you get from Paul Blart. Whatever your opinion may be about Kevin James, you cannot deny that he gives 110% in these movies in the physical comedy department, from stunts on a Segway to tossing his body around like a rag doll. It's actually pretty impressive, and it's often very funny. I laughed way more than I thought I would, at least at the first movie. The sequel was more bereft of laughs, but it also had probably the funniest scene of both movies uh, when he fights a large bird, a crane, with an attitude problem. It's super dumb, but it made me laugh a lot. And that's all I was asking for. So, I mean, the first Paul Bart, very watchable, enjoyable enough if you don't go in expecting to be wowed. The second one, though, not quite as good. It's set in Vegas as uh, Paul Blart attends a security guard convention of some sort, and a bunch of art thieves led by Neil McDonough try to steal the art from the hotel. Again, a serviceable enough plot. Sadly, though, not as many laughs as the first one. 
almost, you know, aggressively unfunny at times. Yet there was that bird scene and there were a couple of other scenes that were funny enough that it didn't feel like I was wasting my time watching it. Again, I'm not saying these Paul Blart movies are great movies, but they're also not the worst movies I've seen in recent years. They're harmless, occasionally fun and funny, entertaining movies. The whole family can enjoy them. And if you doze off for a few minutes, you actually haven't missed anything. Again, I, I really think if they hadn't named the character Blart, these movies wouldn't be the punching bags that they are, but eh, what are you going to do? Paul Blart, Mall Cop, three couch cushions out of five. Paul Blart, Mall Cop, two, two and a half couch cushions out of five, Brett. Those are on Netflix? Those, uh, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> okay. I should have looked that up, but you keep talking. I'm going to look that up right okay. now. Okay. Uh, well, you mentioned uh, stuff that, that requires you got to pay close attention, complex underlying themes and subtext, et cetera, et cetera. Well, just a quick wrap on something I talked about at length last week, and that's the, also on Netflix, German science fiction about time travel, Dark, because last week when I talked about it, I was halfway through the series. It's three seasons, 26 episodes in total, and uh, I, I finished it. It took me just a couple more days to finish it, and honestly, this is uh, not hyperbole for me to say that it's one of the best shows I've ever watched. Uh, now, I... I will add the caveat that I like science fiction and I and I like dark, sometimes sad shows. So this has all of that, but it's not. Even though it's very sciency, this is very much about the people involved and the way that they are all connected and the the how the decisions they make in one timeline affect another and and could have potentially tragic outcomes. It's just and when when you get to that third season, it, it when. It gets even more complicated, and somehow it still makes sense. And once they start to tie off some knots and you see, how can that person be that person's kid or vice versa? It just, it, like, it was this sort of mind-blowing scene after mind-blowing scene. So I highly, highly, highly recommend Dark. And in fact, with a few seconds we have left as a whole, I give Dark as a series... The Sectional. The sectional five couch cushions out of five. By the way, the Paul Blart movies are on Netflix. That's all the time we've got. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. Don't bother.